Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion, the national science show. If you like your science fresh, interesting, uncluttered, unprejudiced, and relevant, join us for the next half hour as we inject wonderful science in your brain. In this edition, Lachlan Watmore will present the first part of our two-part special on the life of the late, great Les Paul, without whom modern music would not be what it is today. Mark West will get us all in a brew by talking about the science of coffee, and we'll start our usual round discussion of the news this week. So we've got hormone-free, cage-free, and antibiotic-free meats available at our supermarkets, but the future of meat production might actually reside in more ethical meats, which is to say pain-free animals. Could pain-free be one of the new stickers that you can find on your steaks? What I'd really like, you know, before they actually come out and say we're going to uh, genetically engineer some animals that don't feel pain, I'd like to actually know what pain uh, 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 agricultural uh, agricultural animals go through uh, as, compa- as compared to wild animals. You know, my old man was a vet, and um, I've personally seen farmers staying up until 3 o'clock in the morning nursing a, de- nursing a, um, a sick calf. And uh, I can I can understand uh, high density feedlots, and I can understand battery cages. I don't like them very much at all. But I'm just sort of wondering, you know, why must agriculture agriculture be painted as this great sort of place of pain? Maybe that's for another time. I don't know. Well, yeah, I think the problem is um, our consumption of meat is ridiculous. I mean, it's 300 million tons each year, and it's only been increasing since the 1960s. So I think the huge battery of meat production and cruelty and you know stuffing chickens 12 15 30 i don't even know how many a cage is just it's going to happen if we want to keep feeding the growing population yeah pain free animals is that ethical at all really i mean as a you know maybe it's ethical because they don't feel when they're killed but then throughout their lives they don't feel any pain they don't feel anything presumably you can't just dull the pains without dulling the good stuff as well can't you they actually um they actually found three pakistani families that had six children that couldn't experience pain but the children themselves were fine and they were healthy the only problem was they injuries tended to go untreated yeah they were covered in cuts and bruises and one of them actually fell off of a roof and you know died a catastrophic death because i don't think you learn to protect yourself in the same way this is what i mean this is more what i meant actually about it being ethical Mm. But, I mean, presumably, if you've got a battery farm situation, it's not like the animals will be free to roam and, and get into too much trouble. And there's a difference, I think, between the sensation of um, discomfort and the sensation of pain. There's yeah. there's a pretty distinct threshold when someone's pinching you bet- between when, you know, you just kind of like, ow, stop it, and ow, that hurts. Mm. The sensation of discomfort is still enough to kind of give us a survival or avoidance, mm. do you mm. think? Well, I don't know. That'd be very interesting to find out. Yeah, neither do I. At this point, I'm wishing Gina Satori was here. She's a member from uh, the days gone by when this show was called Discovery, not Diffusion. And uh, she's uh, completed a PhD in psychology, so I wish she was here. Mm. Well, Victoria and I weren't born at that stage, Lachlan. What else have you got, Victoria? (laughs) 
Well, um, I've got some medically related news. They're finding scientists are developing a sort of gel-like substance that could actually help uh, limit the extent of brain damage after trauma. So what happens after trauma is um, you're, you've got death of certain brain cells, and, and that's pretty bad to begin with, but then you get an after-ripple effect of damage as the cells swell and they kind of recruit your immune system, and that releases a whole bunch of you know reactive oxygen species and whatnot that then damages a whole bunch of adjacent cells. So what the scientists are trying to develop is this injectable gel that you can put in, and it would release um, anti-inflammatory factors to kind of limit your response to trauma. And okay. it would also, they're trying to mix in some stem cells and some growth factors that would let the stem cells start to replicate in the damaged area. And they're hoping it'll um, decrease scarring. Where are they working on that? Klesman University, South Carolina. Okay. Because at the moment, the, the mainstay of, for treatment of brain trauma after an accident is um, to cool the patient down. That kind of limits your your inflammatory response? Yeah. It's, it doesn't actually work that well, so this could be really interesting. More than the anti-inflammatories, what the researchers are really excited about is that they're, the gel spurs growth of stem cells, and yeah, when yeah. they've actually injected this in rats, um, they recovered faster from severe brain damage. So okay. it could be a hope for the future, maybe mm -hmm. even for strokes and all sorts of applications. And you've got something amazing to share with us, Victoria? <laughs> There's an emerging procedure um, called gastric bypass surgery. I'm sure you've heard of it in the media. Mm -hmm. um, what's sort of beginning to be revolutionary about this is they're seeing the after effects of gastric bypass surgery, and they're finding that it's not only helping people cut down their weight to a third of what it was before, but it's also radically improving um, symptoms of type 2 diabetes. So type 2 diabetes is um, a syndrome that's often associated with obesity, and it's when your body stops being reactive to insulin, and they find that within hours or days of getting a gastric bypass surgery, the patients stop needing their medication. They don't need extra insulin. They start responding to their own levels, which is fantastic. And it's, it's, it's also extraordinary given that the stomach, the whole stomach is being bypassed. Now, the gastric bypass isn't to be confused with stomach stapling, okay, where the, the volume of the stomach is reduced. This is where a length of small intestine is taken from the esophagus directly to the duodenum, yeah? Yeah, okay. exactly. Wow. So the, the, the food does not go through the stomach at all? Well, they keep a, a tiny little pouch in okay. the stomach. No. Okay, so yeah, okay, that's that's for, for peptinases and, and uh, hydrochloric acid uh, excretions, things like that. Exactly, yeah. okay. and there's still, I mean, there's still a few hormones that are secreted by the, by the stomach, yeah. okay. which can stimulate um, the intestines later but what what makes gastric bypass as opposed to gastric banding really interesting is people who get gastric banded can kind of cheat. So they can have ice cream and that can slip under the band and they can they can graze. But people with ga gastric bypass, they're finding that they're they're completely full. Right. They don't have mm. the hunger pangs that mm. can be associated with you know that is associated with dieting or even with gastric banding, and so uh, researchers are really interested in seeing why that is, and they're discovering that. I mean, the stomach is like a second brain. There's just, there's so much secreted there, so many hormones, so many neurons, so much regulation that we still don't really understand. Hmm. So what they're finding is um, the gut releases hormones that let you know when you're full, stuff like cholecystokinin or glucagon-like peptide 1. So the drug companies are looking at these patients that aren't even experiencing hunger pens, so and they're uh, developing drugs based on these compounds that are usually um, released when you're full. And they're giving it to patients with diabetes, and they're 
they lose a lot of weight as well. Okay. So, so these folks do not experience hunger at all. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the testimonies, they just say they have to remind themselves when to eat. To eat, yeah, yeah. So they could theoretically go, you know, days without a meal and wouldn't notice. Yeah, but I mean, you know, not all surgery is safe. It's getting safer, but you still have a 0.5% chance of terrible complications. And there's also a lot of problems with malnutrition because mm. obviously your stomach is there for a reason. Your stomach helps mix things and break them down. And if you're bypassing also a large part of your small intestine, that's where you absorb everything. Yeah. So... And whilst a lot of people with type 2 diabetes might be overweight, it's not everybody, is it? But they are doing research, particularly in Brazil, where they're giving gastric, gastric bypasses to people who aren't overweight. Oh, so really? people with a BMI of 25, which is, you know, just the borderline of overweight, and their symptoms significantly improve as well. Okay. Is it uh, diabetes that prompts them to do that? Yeah, it's the diabetic patients. Yeah. And now, here's the first part of our special on Les Paul, the late great musician and inventor. Lachlan Watmore has come out of mourning for the great man to fill us in. I was only 12, or maybe 13, when I saw and heard this. screen a young English guitar wizard was playing a beautiful orange sunburst instrument with such skill and flair that I was mesmerized by his blurred fingers on the dark rosewood fretboard. The young man's name was Jimmy Page, the band's name Led Zeppelin and the guitar was and is called the Gibson Les Paul. Last month, we lost the man, Les Paul, and the world of electric music is poorer for it. Until he died, few people knew about the amazing contribution to modern music he made. Les didn't just help develop the most beautiful as well as the most powerful solid-body electric guitar. He also invented multi-track recording and overdubbing and made a huge contribution to the development of instrumental effects. Oh, and let's not forget that he was a talented guitarist himself. Here he is. As you can hear, Les had the freakish ability to play eight guitars at once. Well, not really. This piece of music is called Lover and is believed to be the first ever multi-track recording. All the guitar parts you can hear are played by Les. Lester William Polsfus was born in 1915 in the American Midwest and was a professional musician before he turned 20. He played with all the great jazz greats of the pre-war era, including Bing Crosby and the late, great Louis Satchmo Armstrong, the greatest musician of the 20th century. He also had a preoccupation with gadgets, and by age 10 had invented a harmonica holder from a coat hanger, which held a blues harp to his mouth while he played the guitar. This design is still manufactured today. Les cut his teeth musically before the Second World War, and like many guitarists of the period, was dissatisfied with the technology available. Amplified guitars tended to screech and squawk with feedback, and a pickup attached to a guitar would vibrate and distort the sound. 
Les reasoned that a solid body guitar would overcome this, so he sliced an Epiphone acoustic guitar down the middle, removed its neck, grabbed a piece of 4x4 pine wood, attached a guitar neck at one end and a bridge pickups and output jack at the other, glued the two body halves of the Epiphone to the piece of pine purely for aesthetic value, and thus invented the Les Paul Log, regarded as the world's first solid body electric guitar and certainly one of the world's ugliest instruments. Check it out on the net if you don't believe me. A quick word about pickups. Pickups are not microphones. They are electromagnetic transducers. They work by creating a magnetic field around the strings. And when the string is plucked, the magnetic field's lines of force are interrupted. This sends electrical pulses to a coil of thin copper wire wound several thousand times around the base of the pickup, and the pulses correspond to the frequency of the note. So, for example, the frequency of a concert A is 440 cycles per second. So a string tuned to concert A will vibrate at 400 figure eights per second, the copper coil will transmit 400 pulses per second, the amplifier will receive 400 pulses per second and convert that electrical energy back into a concert A. The reason that the log was significant was because it took away all of the guitar's resonance and thus devoted most of its energy to sustaining the note. That's what Les wanted, not for the guitar itself to shape the note, but for a more pure, sustained electronic signal that could be shaped once it left the guitar. This philosophy set the scene for electric guitar setups unto this day and explains the great versatility of the instrument from... ...to... ...to... Not to mention, and, and, oh, and let's not forget, in 1948, Leo Fender and the Fender Electrical Musical Instrument Corporation produced the Fender Telecaster, the first mass-manufactured solid body, and the Gibson Guitar Corporation, who had been making high-end expensive guitars since the 19th century, realised they had to catch up to grab a slice of the booming post-war market. The Gibson president, Ted McCarty, approached Les Paul about developing a solid-body electric that would be the top-of-the-range answer to Fender's cheaper, working-man's Telecaster. Les and Ted went through about 50 prototypes before they settled on the new design, a classic single-cutaway shape with a carved cap or top, the first of its kind. It was made of two different woods, mahogany for the main body and maple for the cap. This made it quite heavy, much more so than the purely maple Telecaster and later Stratocaster. The heaviness meant density, and density meant sustain. Les had insisted on no less than a 20-second sustain, and the new guitar delivered, prompting Nigel Tufnell of Spinal Tap years later to comment, Listen, how much is this? Just listen for a minute. The sustain, listen to it. I'm not hearing anything. You would, though, if it were playing, because it really... It's famous for its sustain. I mean, you can yeah. just hold it. Well, I mean, so you'd have to pull. You can go, go and have a bite. No, you'll still yeah. be hearing that one. Yeah. The Gibson Les Paul made its debut in 1952, originally with single-coil pickups. However, Ted McCarty and a Gibson employee called Seth Lover had developed double-coil pickups known as humbuckers. Two coils of wire, wound in opposite directions to each other, sat under the magnets, and each coil cancelled the other's stage buzz, or hum, to which single-coil pickup was prone. Playing a single-coil setup in certain conditions, say, under a fluorotube, produced interference and the amplifier would hum slightly. So the new pickups bucked the hum, hence the name. A result of this was that the guitar now delivered a very powerful signal to the amplifier because now both coils produced a pulse. This wasn't so good if you wanted a sweet, clean sound 
but it was great if you wanted the guitar to overload and distort, or as they say in the biz, crunch. In 1965, the new rock and roll had already developed into different genres, such as pop and rockabilly. Guitarists were rediscovering the blues roots of rock and roll, and this more blues-orientated music would soon be called simply rock. One of these guitarists was a young Eric Clapton, who soon realised the potential of the Les Paul when coupled with Jim Marshall's new series of amplifiers, comprising great valve-driven speaker cabinets with serious grunt. These go to 11. Clapton was playing with a band called the Yardbirds at the time. In 1968, the old Yardbirds broke up and the new Yardbirds, comprising Jimmy Page, John Paul Jones, Robert Plant and John Bonham, finished the old band's contractual obligations and changed their name to Led Zeppelin. Page, by this stage, was using a 1952 Les Paul almost exclusively, the humbuckers and associated effects producing Zeppelin's characteristic... well, this... In the next instalment, I'm going to have a look at Les Paul's contributions to recording technology. So if you'll pardon the pun, stay tuned. Good evening. It's the sound of science. The sound of science. Science. That was Lachlan Watmore in the life of the great Les Paul. He'll be back next week for the next segment. You're listening to Diffusion, the science radio show, broadcast by 2SER throughout Sydney and across Australia by the Community Radio Network. You can also podcast us at www.diffusionradio.com. Here's Mark West grilling Rafael Bartowski from Campos Coffee on the science of coffee. What do you think the most important part of the coffee-making process is? Is it the grind or is it the, the pressure in the machine? I would say uh, the most important part of the of the process of making coffee is basically there's a few things. It is just not just one. I, I would say the most important thing is obviously the coffee. Then you've got you know the, the equipment you work with or own and and the barista. Because at the end of the day, you you might be able or might have access to the best beans or best equipment money can buy. But in the end, it's out of you know it's it's up to your barista how he's going to make the coffee or how she's going to make the coffee to taste good. So if you it's a pretty complicated process actually it's it's complex but if you've got all those things done right it it, it should, you should get a decent cup of coffee and and how does the grind of the bean itself work for an espresso you need very fine grind um, yeah like I said back to the equipment basically you know the coffee needs to needs to be really tasty needs to be really dark and brown the moment it comes out of your machines in the first place so the, the, I would say the the finer the better in terms of you know it doesn't matter what sort of really what type of coffee you're making the grind should be always you know proper and Australia has a bit of a love for sort of espresso machines and, and milky coffee Great. what uh, what are some of the other types of coffee you can find around the world and what where do you prefer your coffee from oh listen uh, there's so many um, like I say oh, uh, ways of, of, of buying or of roasting and, and making coffees you know the You've got in, in, you've got Turkish coffee, which is you know the really really old school uh, way of, of coffee. Then you've got um, I went to, to to different parts of the world and I had the, the strongest coffee I probably ever had was uh, in Sicily. You know, a little old gentleman made me you know really thick, really small tiny espresso with um, a piece of dark chocolate in it. It was just you know to die for. 
And what about the caffeine in a coffee? What's the, what's the sort of strongest coffee you could make at home? Uh, you, you, you basically, like, like I said, it's, it's not about the strength. It's, uh, in the end, it's about the flavor, I would say. And um, if you don't have this really nasty, you know, um, bitter aftertaste in, in, on the, at the back of your palate, that means the coffee was good. I've often found with uh, decaf coffee that I still get a little bit, a little bit hyped. So there, there are other chemicals at work as well as caffeine? Um, we rather, um, we actually, what we do here at campus, our coffee is um, Swiss decaf processed caffeinated coffee. So uh, basically what, what it means is uh, it's actually washed. And I would say you won't be able to, to wash the, the caffeine out of the beans uh, at any point. So completely. And there's always a tiny bit of, 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 you know, of caffeine in your coffee, even if that's decaf, yeah. And you were saying earlier that all beans in Australia only come from two suppliers. Um, yeah, there is uh, two major, two major suppliers. Yeah, um, although there is um, um, a growing market um, in Australia of small um, suppliers. You know, we ourselves basically buying um, beans from a few suppliers. We've got over forty percent of our beans at the moment comes directly from the growers. So it's a, it's called direct trade. But um, yeah, market's bigger, it's growing, it's better, uh, it's more competitive, which is great. This way you can get better, better coffee and better beans in the end. But yeah, two major bigger suppliers, and uh, not just in Australia, it's a, it's a worldwide supplier. They, they're quite big. And it was interesting what you were saying about fair trade in support of it, but also Campos does its, some of its own sort of fair trade type things. Yeah, you try and do your best. Like I said before, we, we're trying to, to deal with growers and suppliers that we know where the money goes and it comes from. Uh, we, we're trying to do as much uh, market research uh, as we possibly can, um, where the beans come from and, and how much we're paying, how much goes back to the community and what they're getting out of it. And, and what's your particular favourite coffee? What do you make at home? I, I, I would say it's, it's a process for me. About 10 years ago, I started with you know, a milk-based coffee, it's latte, and then I cut it to... I started drinking uh, three-quarter latte and then piccolo lattes now. I'm really into, you know, you know espressos, macchiato, really as, as less as, as possible, but less yeah. and better. So you're not into the Aussie flat white that no one else in the world knows? Uh, occasional flat white or latte doesn't hurt. Um, it's a very casual drink. As, as we know, the society and, and the, the trends changed over the last couple of years. And as people have noticed over the last couple of years, instead of, you know, catch, catching up or getting together after work for, uh, for a drink, we're all going up for, for latte. Yeah. Latte, occasional latte doesn't hurt, like I said. It's a good drink. I enjoy it everyone's why as well. And you think coffee in Australia is getting better over time? Oh, absolutely. Oh, especially over the last 10 years, it's just a, a major, major, major change in, uh, in, in, not in coffee, but the coffee, uh, coffee quality and coffee being served. You know, that's, uh, that's been something um, that it, 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 it got better over the years and uh, the equipment is better. There's a more uh, boutique, you know, artisan roasters, which is good. That brings brings the better coffee to the masses drinking drink drinking outside. And yeah, it's getting better. It's great. Can't get better than that. It's good. That was Mark West getting high on coffee. And that's it from us in this week's show of Diffusion. Diffusion is panelled and produced here in Sydney in the two SER studios by the wonderful Mark West. Contributing to the show were Mark West, Lachlan Walkmore, and me, Victoria Bond. Check us out on our podcast at www.diffusionradio.com or email us with criticism, comments, or glorious, glorious praise at diffusion at 2ser.com. 
I'm Victoria Bond, and I'll see you next week. Got it.